thus I have an opportunity to welcome you to what I want to argue is the best month of the whole year. You can be forgiven uh, for uh, thinking that I believe this selfishly. Uh, if you paid attention when the birthday calendar was distributed, I'm one of the 33 people in our congregation who celebrates a birth in, uh, my birth in the month of June. I was about eight or nine years old when I figured out that if you want to spread out your gift-giving holidays, June is about the best time of the year to have a birthday. It's six months away from Christmas. If you want to maximize your enjoyment of the presents, spread them out. I remember, I don't, I'm not sure if it was the same year or not, but one year I got for Christmas a new sled and for my birthday, a baseball bat. It was perfect. It worked out perfectly with the calendar. June is the month for strawberries and fireflies. Is there anything better than walking out of your house on a warm summer evening and looking across your lawn and seeing fireflies? School is out, summer begins, June smells like pool chlorine and sunscreen. It's warm, but it's not too hot and humid, and even if it is hot and humid, we're not tired of it like we are at the end of August. June is the time of the year when your summer flowers, your perennials, start to bloom. Um, it's been said April is the cruelest month. And December may be the jolliest month, but June, June is the best month. In recent years, actually, uh, June, too, has taken on a new role. It's Pride Month. And the evidence of Pride Month is everywhere. It's in stores. It's in advertisements. Uh, it's on social media posts. Uh, companies and organizations, even the branches of our military, seem to be trying to outdo one another in advertising their love for uh, gender and sexual diversity. Because of that, June is a month that makes us think how we followers of Jesus, who commitments, whose commitments are shaped by the scriptures, how we ourselves respond to the LGBTQ plus movement. And that's what we're going to talk about today. This is the third of three weeks in which we've talked about the Bible, what the Bible says about gender and sexuality. Um, we're going to soon, soon we're going to resume our regular practice of moving systematically through uh, books of the Bible. Um, if you want more information about what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, you could read an excellent book by Andrew Walker called God and the Transgender Debate. It's clear, it's uh, concise, it's very pastoral, and if you read it, you'll learn how much I learned from Andrew Walker's book, God and the Transgender Debate. Two weeks ago, we talked about God's good design. What did he design when he made us male and female? Then last week, we talked about how we've drifted so far away from God's design. And today, we're going to talk again about how to respond, responding to the LGBTQ plus movement. I, I want us to be better at this than we have been in the past. Uh, think about how Followers of Jesus and churches in the United States responded to the rising tide of homosexuality, especially in how we responded to the AIDS crisis in the 1980s. Those gay people, those lesbian people were a different kind of sinner. That's the way we talked about them. A different kind of sinner, and there were a lot of us who said things like, AIDS is just God's wrath on them for their perversion them, those people, without any sort of acknowledgement 
of the, the, the fact that we are all sinners and that heterosexual sin is no more displeasing to God than homosexual sin is. And, and that uh, uh, we, we all don't, without any acknowledgement of the fact that the sexuality of all of us is broken in some ways. So I want, I want us to be better at talking about these issues now than we were then. We've, we've learned a lot by God's grace. Kevin DeYoung says that whenever we enter into the uh, discussions of the LGBTQ plus movement, we should recognize that there are two conversations going on at the same time. On the one hand, there's the public debate, the public debate about public issues. How are we going to respond to these um, discussions uh, publicly? And we're thinking here about uh, bathrooms and locker rooms. How are these issues going to be talked about, if at all, in public schools and for what grades? What about prisons and hospitals and where do uh, uh, transgender men and women, where should they be assigned in prisons? Uh, who, uh, what about the military and the place that LGBTQ plus uh, people have in the military? Who pays for gender, it used to be the phrase was gender reassignment surgery. Now the phrase is gender confirmation surgery. I'll just say gender surgery. Who, who pays for it? Should Medicare pay for gender confirmation surgery? Oh, what about sports? And where do transgender men and women participate in sports? What about medical treatment for children? Some states have proposed laws restricting um, certain medical treatments, puberty blockers and things like that for children, uh, and uh, there's been a great public outcry against those states that have tried to do so. I wonder if you know that in Finland and Sweden and Great Britain, they have already passed laws restricting some of these treatments for uh, children. There's a public debate, and the public debate calls for a certain form of communication. But there's another side to these issues, not just the public debate, but another conversation, namely personal relationships, personal relationships. And now I'm thinking about how you love uh, your relatives and your friends who own one of these letters, LGBTQ+. And how you talk with them across the Thanksgiving dinner table. Or who, who do you talk to? Who do you talk to in your life about your own same-sex attraction? What about these personal relationships? And how do we form, maintain, work them out? Now, I want to say that in the public debate and the personal relationship, there's a difference in the communication that you would have in those two arenas. Not a difference in the message. That we don't change the message. And not really in tone either. It's not like we can be mean and sarcastic and angry in the public debate and charming in personal relationships. That's not what I'm advocating either. So the difference is not in the message, nor is it in the tone. Maybe the difference is in the order in which you might bring something up or the um, a, a level of empathy that you might have, the speed with which you might have a conversation, the difference between the public debate and the personal relationship. 
For help in this, what I want to do is I want you to turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2 is where I want to direct your attention this morning, and we're going to read from verses 22 to 26. 2 Timothy 2, 22 to 26. Now, um, Jack Kranz is going to be here next week, and unbeknownst to either of us, he's going to read and talk about these passages, this passage too. Uh, I'm sure Jack will say different things than I will about this, these verses, um, which will be just fine. But look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. We'll start there. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. You might be, if you're under, oh, I don't know, 30 or so, wonder why Paul picks on the youths, right? He says, flee the evil desire of youth, as if, hey, once you hit 30, you have no more evil desires, you're home free, right? No. Uh, Paul was writing to Timothy, and he was a young man, so he's concerned about Timothy's own life, but you should think, are there particular evil desires that characterize youth that don't particularly characterize or that, that change in old age? We need the sequel to 2 Timothy where Paul writes about the evil desires of being a senior. Right? He says, regardless, he, he says, flee those desires and pursue these things, righteousness, faith, love, and peace, with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Do you have anybody in your life like that who helps you flee evil desires and pursues, uh, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace? Who, who in your life are you pursuing these things with? It's a good question to ask. Verse 23, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. We're not going to stop every five seconds that I read the scriptures, but uh, verse 23, I want to think about this for just a minute. Is anybody ready for a little sarcasm? It's my love language. Here, you ready? Here it is. Why? I can't imagine why Paul would talk to Christians about foolish and stupid arguments. I can't imagine that. I mean, every argument that I've ever been involved in in a Christian has been well-reasoned and insightful and has not been foolish and stupid. So why in the world would he feel the need to write this verse? I feel attacked by verse 23. I just want you to know that. Hmm. Well, now we move on to verse 24. Here we're in better shape. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance leading them to a knowledge of the truth and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Notice here the goal and how we enter these conversations, whether it's the public debate or personal relationships. What's the goal? The goal of the way we speak is so that those who listen will repent, particularly our opponents, that they would repent. We speak, now it's an interesting verse, isn't it? We speak... And in the process of our gentle speech, our, our not resentful speech, our, our instructing she, speech, God, we speak, and God grants them repentance. Uh, the goal is to win our opponents, not to roast them, not to own them, not to humiliate them, not to... Uh, um, 
destroy them. A lot of the discourse that we have, this is the way our political discourse works. The, polit- uh, the point of political discourse is to own your opponents or humiliate your opponents. That's not Christian discourse. A lot of the discourse that happens in public is um, not to win opponents, but to uh, earn the applause of those who already agree with you. Um, There's two channels, at least, on your uh, cable uh, box that are devoted to not convincing opponents, but to earning the applause of those who already agree with everything that's said on those channels. Uh, Now, there's, there's... there is some usefulness, there is some usefulness in instruction, in instructing those, I, I mean, the last couple of weeks, have, have we've been doing that a little bit here, instructing us as we think about what the Bible says. There's some usefulness to this, but, but uh, the goal here what, is to bring outsiders in. If you're speaking only to earn the applause of those who already agree with you, you're off target with what Paul's goal is here. Paul's goal, bring outsiders in, outsiders in. To that end, I want to share some values with you for responding to the LGBTQ plus movement. The first two values that I want to share with you focus more on the public debate, I think, and the third one is more about personal relationships, but I think they'll they'll all be helpful. There's some overlap uh, there. Value number one, clarity, clarity. That's been the focus of the first two weeks of this series. We must have rock-solid convictions. Followers of Jesus have rock-solid convictions about what the Bible says about God's uh, good design, about his creation design, about roles for manhood and womanhood that the Bible speaks about, about the difference between biblical mandates and cultural stereotypes, conversant about why we feel so strongly about the uh, marriage being between one man and one woman because Paul says it's a picture of the relationship between Christ and his church, and that matters. That matters to us supremely. Um, We're not shaped primarily by our cultural stereotypes, but by God's God's good design, rock-solid clarity. If you don't catechize your children in these issues, someone else will. Rock-solid clarity is necessary when you face the temptation to change your convictions when someone you love begins to own one of these letters, begins to associate themselves with the, lesb- uh, with the LGBTQ plus movement. I mentioned it a couple weeks ago, that temptation to change your convictions will be very strong if your daughter were to say that she is transgender, or if your son were to say He's a homosexual. Or your grandchild. Tim Keller pokes us in the eye a little bit. He's not used to doing that. But Tim Keller pokes us in the eye a little bit. He says that if you change your convictions about these issues because someone you love or someone you know or someone you respect um, is a member of the LGBTQ plus movement, that means that your original convictions were probably not actual convictions. You were just a bigot before. But now you know somebody Now you know that not all LGBTQ plus people are weird or strange or evil or irresponsible. Now that that you love someone, well, hmm, maybe, maybe, maybe I'm not right in my convictions about that. You were were a bigot. You were uh, uh, shaped by biblical convictions. 
I want you to think for a minute about the conversations that you might have with a coworker or a friend, someone uh, in the office or your neighbor, uh, when, when they find uh, views, the views of the LGBTQ plus movement compelling or attractive. And I want you to have, I'm going to share with you some things that you might want to keep in mind. I use the word arguments. I'm not telling you to get in a fight with anybody, but, but some arguments that you might have in mind that would be helpful in the discussion that you might have. Uh, they're not original to me, and they're not the full extent of things that you could say. But here's some things that maybe you could talk about uh, uh, across the lunch break table. And I want you to think, first of all, of the body argument, what I'll say is called the body argument. There are clear differences between male bodies and female bodies, and it matters in sports. You have to suspend a lot of disbelief in order to believe that there's no difference between male fe- and female bodies on a track field or in a swimming pool. I think it was the state of Iowa, I'm not sure, but the number one uh, 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 high school track athlete, the fastest high school girl in Iowa, wrote an article for one of the newspapers in Iowa talking about their sports times. And her, she was the number one runner in the state of Iowa, and her time, if you put it next to the boys' lists, her time was 85th on the list. 85th. Now, it's true it's true that she's faster than runners 86 to 4,000 of, of the boys in Iowa, but she has no chance of winning if there's no distinction between boys and girls. She has no chance of ever winning a state championship or a scholarship or anything like that. The body argument. Um, it's possible to make changes in your external appearance, but not in, in your cells. Male and female bodies are meant to complement each other. Uh, a few years ago, the Royal Dutch Airlines thought they were making a very clever post when they were uh, uh, during Pride Month. Look at this. Um, and, uh, and this is the post they made, and they got really roasted for this. But it, it says here, it might not be, you might be able to read it. It says, it doesn't matter who you click with, happy Pride Amsterdam. Someone was not thinking. And the reason they were not thinking is there's the reality that only one of these combinations, when it clicks, will keep you in your seat if your airplane goes off the runway. Well, there's only one way to click these things together that will work. Someone wasn't thinking. They unintentionally let the truth slip in this tweet. There's body differences. The body argument is why we believe that bathrooms and locker rooms should be segregated places because of there's differences in bodies, and it matters when there's children in locker rooms and bathrooms. Then next here we move on to the maturity argument, the maturity argument. I don't know how many people know this, but 90% of children who express a gender identity other than their sex change as they go through adolescence, 90%. And uh, it, when, when we start treating children, uh, we introduce into their lives life-altering medical procedures. There have been double mastectomies done to girls as young as 13 in the state of California. There was, a, there was an article in the New York Times earlier this week arguing that 18-year-olds ought not to be able to own firearms that 18, 19, and 20-year-olds are not old enough to own and responsibly use firearms, why, why are we listening to 8-year-olds and 7-year-olds about how they want to identify and introduce life-altering medical treatments into their lives? 
If your 14-year-old child came home one day and said to you, I found the person I want to marry, would you say to them, great, let's go get the deal done. Here, we'll sign the papers. Did you know what's going to happen to that 14-year-old child? They're going to change. Or if your nine-year-old came home and said, I'm sure I know what I want to be. I want to be a plumber when I grow up. Would you say, well, then you don't need to go into fourth grade. Let's just apprentice you to a plumber right now and you can start earning some money. You wouldn't do that with a nine-year-old in their career, a 14-year-old with someone they want to marry. Uh, 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 There's people arguing that a 19-year-old ought not to have a, a gun in their hands. Are you sure this is the way to go? Third, there's the mind argument, the mind argument. We talked last week about gender dysphoria. Gender dysphoria is that feeling that you have that your body, uh, you don't belong in your body, or when your gender identity, it differs from your sex. And it's that distress that happens when that, there's that conflict. It's real and it's painful. You have, we have the choice here in our society. We can either address the mind to bring it in conformity to the body, Or right now what's happening is we're trying to alter the body to bring it into conformity with the mind. Both of those are going to be painful and difficult and challenging experiences because gender dysphoria is real and it is painful. But body interventions don't actually work to alleviate the depression, the anxiety, the suicidal thoughts that gender dysphoria can sometimes Uh, cause or result from. Or think about the mind argument. You can think about it this way. Some of you are are very familiar with the terrible condition known as anorexia, the painful um, burden of anorexia. Anorexia is um, an eating disorder. It's where you restrict your calories because of your fear of gaining weight or this perception that you have that you're overweight. How would it be if a young girl went into her Uh, a a teenager went to her guidance counselor and said, I'm overweight. I know I'm overweight. I've got to lose weight. And when she looks in the mirror, she sees um, fat. She sees obesity. She sees someone who is unhealthily big. And when you look at her, what you see is skin and bones and ill health. Would you, because of her perception affirm her perception and say to her, okay, I'll help you lose weight. I'll I'll give you a diet that will help you so lose weight and so that you're, and pills so that you're not hungry, so that, so that you, because your perception of yourself is authoritative in this situation and we'll treat you that way. Would you be pleased if a guidance counselor did that under, under circumstances like that? Then last here on my list here, you can think of the consistency argument. The consistency argument, ask someone, um, again, we're not being confrontational here, but you could ask, is it okay for someone to identify as a member of a different ethnicity? Could an African-American man identify as an Asian man? Or could... uh, a Caucasian woman identify as an African-American woman. Why not? Why not? Could I identify as a seven-year-old and um, enroll in second grade? 
And, and if I committed a crime, would I be tried as a minor because I've been, uh, I identify as a seven-year-old? And um, could I join the U8 soccer team and go compete with all the other seven-year-olds on the soccer field? Or, or could I identify as a 65-year-old man and retire and start collecting Social Security? Why not? Why, why couldn't I do that? Why, why can't I do it? If I, if I can go to the government and demand that they change the M to an F on my driver's license, why can't I demand that they change the year on my driver's license? Because I identify as a 65-year-old. And someone will say, well, you're not 65 years old. No, but I feel like I'm, my knees feel like I'm 65. I identify as a 65-year-old. And the objections to that will all be rooted in biology. Either it'll be rooted in your genetics or the passing of time. I was seven in 1981. I won't be 65 until 2039. I've got a ways to go. The consistency argument, have clarity. Let's have clarity. Now we move on, value number two, also important in the public debate, courage, courage. I don't say this often enough, I should say it more, but this congregation, this is a great place to teach the Bible and to preach the Bible. This is a, a wonderfully encouraging congregation. Over the last couple of weeks, I've got so many comments from people, it's been wonderful, about my courage. This is this sermon series, you're so courageous, this is wonderful. Um, uh, but you know the, the reality, this sermon series is not going to cost me my job. In fact, I might get a raise. That's not how salaries work at Grace, so don't worry about that, that's... that's it's not how that works. I, I'm very safe, and I get applauded for saying many of the things that I say from the pulpit. This is such a safe and wonderful place. My job is not at risk. Not so with you. It's Pride Month. Did they distribute pride pins for you to wear on your name badge at work? Or... Um, what about the affirmations they might ask you to sign during diversity training? What does your school district require of you and how you treat transgender students that are in your classroom? And what happens if you don't conform to them? Uh, has your company um, made you sign an agreement about what you will say publicly or about what you'll write or what you'll post? Someone in the congregation told me that their company monitors their social media to see to make sure they're not doing anything that's out of, out of line with the, the values of their company. Maybe, maybe it's not a good idea that we're live streaming their services. Thankfully, you're not facing the camera, right? I am, but you're not. Um, we should recognize that there is some totalitarianism over these issues in our culture, some totalitarianism about objections. Um, uh, here's, here's an example, and uh, some of you are old enough to remember the name Joan Collins. Do you know the name Joan Collins? Joan Collins is almost 90, but for most of her life, she's been an actress, a well-known actress, and in her heyday of her career, she was uh, the epitome of female sex appeal. Uh, she's uh, almost 90, as I said, and she was recently interviewed by Piers Morgan on a British television show. And Piers Morgan, he's talked a lot about these issues. He said to her, what is a woman? And she said, I'm not going to answer that question. I don't want to be canceled by the trans community. By which she was telling us what she thinks a woman is, but she doesn't want to say it out loud because someone will 
uh, uh, find out and it would be all over. And There's uh, great efforts to silence criticism. Martina Navratilova, the feminist uh, tennis player, has made comments about men and women playing tennis, uh, and uh, she must be silenced. And um, Dave Chappelle, some of you know the name Dave Chappelle, he's a comedian, I'm not commending him to you, he'd be horrified that I'm mentioning his name from the pulpit positively. He doesn't agree with anything that's said from this pulpit, but Dave Chappelle in one of his comedy specials, I didn't watch it, but he recently talked about uh, transgender issues. He was uh, critical, and uh, there was a walkout out at Netflix over his um, comedy special and calls to remove it from uh, the airwaves. Amazon no longer sells Ryan Anderson's book, When Harry Met Sally. It's a very reasoned ev- examination of, the transgen- of transgender issues from a medical uh, uh, perspective, giving some uh, cultural updates about it. It's a very fine, compassionate, clear book. Amazon this week, workers, uh, they walked out and they had a public protest during Pride Month over these books like this that are um, um, transphobic. Uh, Target stopped uh, selling a book after somebody complained by a woman by the name of Abigail Schreier, and uh, she wrote a book called Irreversible, Irreversible Damage about what the transgender movement is doing in particular to girls. Jesse Single is a journalist. He would not agree with many of the things that I say. He's very liberal in, in many of his views. He's not opposed to transgenderism, but he wrote an article in 2018 in The Atlantic uh, exer- uh, expressing caution about transgender treatment for children, and now he has been just highly, highly criticized and efforts made to silence him for speaking about anything uh, because of his views, that article that he wrote. There's a totalitarianism here when you speak. And our response, our responsibility is to respond with courage, not our own version of totalitarianism. That's not what I'm calling for, our own version of totalitarianism. But I wonder, are you ready to answer questions? When someone at work asks you, why aren't you going to wear this pin? Why aren't you wearing this pin? Why, why aren't you wearing the um, LGBTQ, uh, the Pride Month t-shirt that we're all supposed to wear on Friday? Why didn't you go, where, listen, we're sh- having a shower, a uh, wedding shower during a work, on, uh, during lunch on Friday to celebrate Linda and her wife, Joyce, and we want you to come and bring a dish to pass for the wedding shower that we're going to have for her, our coworker. Uh, what do you say? Well... I believe that every person is made in the image of God and worthy of respect and being treated with dignity, and I try to treat every student in my class and every coworker that I have with respect and dignity, but, but wearing the pin, going to the shower would violate my convictions about manhood and womanhood. Courage, ready to answer the questions. Tim Keller said, the Roman Empire, when Christianity began, the Roman Empire said, You Christians are too exclusive. You threaten the social order because you won't honor all deities. And then he says, the modern West says, you Christians are too exclusive. You threaten the social order because you won't honor all identities. I had a conversation recently with an elder in another church and somebody in their congregation who works for a major tech company had presented them with the tech company's uh, uh, policy statement, diversity policy statement, and the elder said, we, we've read it in our church and, and I don't know how a follower of Jesus will be able to continue working at some of these companies 
in, and comply with these policies. Courage. I say these things, my job is not at risk. You say these things, yours may. I recognize that wholly. Third, let's move on. Third value, compassion. Compassion, now we're talking about personal relationships. Remember 2 Timothy 2.24, what it says, our hope, our hope in speaking to opponents is that God would grant them repentance. Carl Truman says that there's a great myth during Pride Month. Remember this, myth during Pride Month. And the myth is of Pride Month is that your sexual identity, sorry, your sexual orientation or your gender identity is the most important thing about you. That's the myth. It's not the most important thing about you. The most important thing about you is that you are made in the image and likeness of God. And we treat everyone as made in the image and likeness of God. Remember what James 2.1 says about this call, what that means. James 2.1 says, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Now, he's talking in this passage about wealth. We don't favor rich people over poor people, but, but it, it applies. Believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ do not show favoritism over sexual orientation or gender identity. Uh, we enter this conversation with compassion, not, not to be condescending to say this, but we enter this discussion with compassion because we know the correlation between depression and anxiety and drug abuse and suicide among members of the non-homosexual, uh, non-heterosexual community. Someone will say, being gay is the most important thing about me, and we know that's not true. Being made in the image of God is the most important thing about you. Um, and when they make that declaration, we know, we suspect, we have this idea that there's more going on there than just their assertion of a sexual orientation or a gender identity. There's more going on. Now, the great challenge is how this compassion manifests itself. Believers disagree about these things. And there's room, there's room for us to disagree about what compassion looks like in certain circumstances. Um, for example, we come up with the issue of preferred names and preferred pronouns. What do we do with preferred names and preferred pronouns? I think preferred names of the two of those is, is easy. Er. If, if somebody came up to me and said, hi, my name is Mike, I'm not going to look at them and say, really? Isn't it Michael? And are you sure your name is Mike? Should I call you Mike? Or, is that the name on your birth certificate? Mike? I, I, don't, I don't do that ever. Person says, my name is Mike. Hi, Mike. It's nice to meet you, right? Preferred names. Uh, uh, names, uh, they, they change across time and across countries as to whether or not they're gendered or, or not. It, uh, names, I think that's pretty easy. The pronouns are a greater challenge. There are some believers who argue very strongly that if you use somebody's preferred pronouns, that you're participating in a lie and you're fostering the illusion. You're at the, some of them talk about it as if you're denying the faith. You use he or she instead of she or he. You are, as it were, denying that Jesus rose from the dead. I mean, this is a huge issue to some people. I don't think that's quite right. Um, other people, other followers of Jesus, faithful followers of Jesus... Um, Andrew Walker is actually among them here. He says um, that using someone's preferred pronouns may be part of building or maintaining a relationship. 
he says, ask yourself, is this where you want to draw the line? Is this the point? Lines have to be drawn. Is this where you want to draw the line in pronouns? Some believers, again, say absolutely, and some say no. We have a practice in our house. We recently started this motto. It's my own motto. No one's adopted it but me. Uh, But when it comes to pronouns... When it comes to pronouns in our house and we talk about our friends, in our house we tell the truth. We, we use he, she, uh, and not they when it's appropriate. We ha- in our house we tell the truth. Now outside of the class, I try to avoid them all together, frankly. You saw me do the last two weeks. I talk about Bruce Jenner, Caitlyn Jenner. I fall over myself to try to avoid using pronouns. But I still don't think this is a fight that I want to have. You may disagree with me about that. That's my um, thought. When it comes to compassion, I think you should adopt a strategy that Isaac Adams uses. Isaac Adams is a pastor in Birmingham, Alabama. He wrote a book recently called Talking About Race. It's on my bookshelf. I want to read it. I've heard a couple interviews with him about this book. He says that what he did when he wrote this book, Talking About Race, is he went through the Bible. What does the Bible say about conversation, how we talk and how we listen? And he tried to apply it to the issue of race and racial tensions in the United States. It's a good strategy. What were to happen? Oh, this would be good exercise for you to do. Your neighbor um, is gay or lesbian or one of your relatives. What do you do? Go through the book of Proverbs and write down everything it says about talking and listening and then use that as guidelines to shape how you relate to that um, person, that relative, that friend of yours. What you'll discover, there's a lot of listening commended in the book of Proverbs, a lot of patience commended in the book of Proverbs. There's truth, there's clarity, absolutely, but there's a lot of patience and a lot of listening and a lot of questions. Rosaria Butterfield, you know, some of you know her story. She was a lesbian professor at Syracuse University. She heard the gospel. Actually, she, um, her testimony is quite compelling. I commend it to you. We won't go into great detail, but she said when she was a lesbian professor, she, her opinion was that Christians use the Bible to end conversations, Christians will use the Bible and they say, this is what God says and that's it. And and no conversation, there can be no conversation. I'm not talking about the sort of conversations where we change the message of what the Bible says, but perhaps the conversation where we talk about why sometimes the Bible and its sexual ethics seems so foreign and so hard and so out of sync with how, how I feel. You can have a conversation with somebody about that without compromising the Bible. This compassion is not convictionless compassion. Regardless of how we speak, we're not going to win everybody. Somebody is going to reject us. That's for sure. Uh, the convictions, I, you, you may have different convictions about this. This is not a matter of Christian uh, fidelity. I myself could not attend in good conscience a same-sex wedding. Um, I think being a wedding, uh, attending a wedding, you are there to support the bride and groom and testify to your approval of this relationship. What do you do under good conscience if the pastor says it's a same-sex wedding and you're there? If anyone has any just cause why these two should not be united in marriage, let him speak now or forever hold his peace. Better you not be there than that you speak. Mm. I find... Compassion with convictions, that's true. I find no warrant anywhere, anywhere in the Bible for a parent to ever say to their child, I disown you. 
You are no longer my child because of this issue, because of the choices or because of the lifestyle you are leading. I disown you. I can find no biblical warrant for a parent ever saying that under any circumstances to their child. How can we? The, the prodigal son is one of our favorite stories in the Bible. How can we ever contemplate as a parent saying to their child, I disown you? We listen in our house a lot to the soundtrack when we drive around, the soundtrack of Fiddler on the Roof. We own three or four copies uh, during our uh, college visits when Claire and I were making them. We would listen to them back to back and compare and contrast who sang what song the best. Do you know the, song, uh, you know the story of Fiddler on the Roof, the musical? I don't want to spoil it for you. But it's about Tevya the milkman who lives in Russia in the early 1900s. And in this time uh, and in this culture, uh, girls were married. The fathers arranged marriages for their daughters. Tevya has five daughters. Daughter number one comes and says to him, Father, Papa, I have found a man to marry. And he says, What? No matchmaker? I didn't make the arrangement? No way. And she says, please, please, Father, give me your permission to marry. And he says, okay. He relents. Tevi the milkman. Daughter number two comes, doesn't ask for permission, only for Tevya's blessing. Tevya's a little peeved about this, but he relents and he gives her uh, his blessing and his permission to marry this man. Daughter number three doesn't come to Papa at all. Daughter number three marries a Gentile, member of the Russian Orthodox Church. She does it in secret after she runs away from her house. What kind of relationship is Tevye going to have with daughter number three? Well, in that culture, in this time, he says he disowns her. No relationship. You are dead to us. Except at the end of Fiddler on the Roof, when they're being forced to leave their town, uh, the, the, the daughter number three and her husband come, and, and there's maybe a little bit of hint that maybe Tevya is going to soften toward daughter number three. And there's this tension as the musical ends, what's going to happen to their future of their relationship? And, and if this were a Hallmark movie, what would happen is that Tevya would, uh, his stubbornness and his commitment to tradition would fade away, and Tevya would suddenly come to love his daughter and see how he was wrong all along about his son-in-law, and it would be, that would be how it would end. Christian stories never end that way because there's always going to be this tension. There's always going to be this tension in your life between you and those you love as they enter into these sort of committed, long-term deviations from God's good plan. It'll be this tension if, if your son is living with his girlfriend, there'll be this tension. If your son is living with his boyfriend, there'll be this tension. There will always be this tension. Compassion builds bridges, but it can't erase that tension. Do you remember what Jesus said about himself in Matthew 12, 20? He said, a bruised reed, he's speaking of himself, quoting Isaiah. Jesus said, he's a, a bruised reed, he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Anybody in your life who's a bruised reed or a smoldering wick? How does the Lord Jesus treat those people? See, we learn about relationships from Jesus. We learn clarity. We learn courage. We learn compassion from him. Why, why do we speak the way Paul says in 2 Timothy 2? Because someone spoke to us that way about the Lord Jesus Christ. Someone told us, someone told us that God demonstrates his own love for us 
in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And God granted us repentance. Someone loved us enough to speak to us kindly and with gentle instruction so that we would believe. That's now how we speak to everyone. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning, and Lord, we have just uh, touched the surface of some of these difficult issues, and we come before you asking that you would help us to think, to be careful men and women, followers of Jesus who think carefully about these things. Oh, Lord, we need wisdom. We need wisdom in how we speak the truth and the love that accompanies that truth, especially when we are in relationships with family members or friends or co-workers. Grant us clarity in our mind and courage in our hearts and fill us with compassion. These are image, our, our fellow image bearers. Help us, O oh Lord, that in respect of our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, we would show no favoritism to these that we know and love. Oh, help us. Help us to encourage one another in this great task. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.